Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation. Today's special coronavirus episode is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is one that, uh, well, doesn't actually have anything to do with the coronavirus, but um, the, the time of recording here, we're just kind of starting to get into the, well, I think people are starting to get into the panic mode in general, but uh, we're not going to spend too much time talking about that. What we'd rather talk about, rather focus on, is our third part in how to make yourself fast on the bike. Yes, um, Andrew makes a very good point. I, I think coronavirus is on the minds of just about everybody all the time now, and uh, we are going to talk to you about things that have absolutely nothing to do with it, because hopefully that can take your mind off uh, the never-ending bombardment and anxiety that we're all now living with. So uh, part three of our cycling Go Faster series is going to focus on sort of miscellaneous components that would have potentially fit into the first two shows that we've done. And of course, do check those out if you haven't listened to them already, and we'll link to them in the show notes once this show is published. But today we want to focus on aero bars, um, crank length, so that could have fit with the fit, but uh, we're going to treat them separately because there's a little bit to talk about that's specific to them. We'll also cover uh, ceramic upgrades for bearings as well as tires uh, and everything that comes that has to do with tires. And uh, finally, we'll touch back on drivetrain and talk about 1x versus 2x drivetrains because there is a consideration, a speed consideration there to uh, be taken into account. Uh, and I said finally, but I rushed the gun because we're also going to talk about something that we don't typically think about when we think about going faster, but it's the ability to handle well. And this is uh, something that uh, Andrew's colleague Art Hare did an interesting simulation on that we'll touch on that I think might uh, entice some of you to uh, take a bike lesson or two. Yeah. And I would say that handling, um, that really comes as free speed. Like it takes practice and time. Uh, Maybe, well, hopefully not, but maybe a few scraped knees. But um, it's something that it's, it's underemphasized with long distance athletes. But when you see pro cycling, that there's a big emphasis, especially with hill descents, where you really see it being a make or break for some athletes. And uh, I think the same goes for for long distance athletes as well. And it's underappreciated. And I, I would really like to dig into that more. Yep. Agreed. Okay, let's jump into it. So uh, let's start with aero bars and uh, the length of your cranks. So we did quite a bit of a deep dive when we spoke with Nick Salazar of TriRig, because clearly the their number one selling product is an aero bar. But um, there are other bars that are worth mentioning um, because they do interesting things or they integrate in an interesting way. And uh, the aerodynamic effects of these sort of products. What we're really starting to see now is a lot more customization and kind of bespoke parts that are being made. So 3D scanning and 3D printing are making all of this possible, where before it used to be just generic extensions and you kind of match um, extension A with base bar B, and that was that was your setup. But now we're we're seeing companies that actually will custom make these. And I know Lucy Charles had uh, something like this where um, it was basically molded around her forearms, so super integrated aerodynamic shape. And uh, we've also seen Patrick Langa and I think uh, Jan Ferdano have have these kind of things at Kona as well. 
Um, so there's certainly a lot of options there for customization. Uh, and really, the sky's the limit. But that's unfortunately the price tag as well. Yeah, but it also doesn't have to be because you're seeing uh, outfits like um, like TriRig that we mentioned, and um, you know, Fifty One Speed Shop to name a couple that are starting to make sort of make off the shelf components that are not necessarily molded to your arms, but uh, provide at least some of the same benefit. Uh, for example, the the TriRig uh, Scoop. I think that's what they're called. They're the longer uh, forearm pads, elbow pads, that now cradle more of the forearm. And the idea there is there might be an aerodynamic benefit. Jury's out. I'm sure if it's 3D printed from titanium and molded to your forearm, there's a, an aero benefit because it's been at least CFD tested. But with these longer pads, just because you can now rest that same, you can apply the same force, the force supporting your upper body, over a larger surface area, that means the pressure on any one spot is that much lower. And that translates directly to comfort. And uh, as we've been kind of beating the drum of comfort over the past couple of episodes of the series, uh, comfort means speed. And so if you're comfortable in your aero position, it directly means that you can spend more time in your aero position, which is the bottom line of which, of course, is that you go faster. And I'm a big fan of this idea. Um, to me, it really makes sense to have these larger pads because I've had issues in the past, especially when you've used a pad for a while and it starts to compress and then your elbow is basically resting on aluminum, which for an Ironman distance race is not fun. Uh, so having these longer pads, even if it does compress, uh, you've still got a lot of area to rest over, but assuming it doesn't, assuming it works properly, then you're going to end up with basically this nice, comfortable, pillow-like resting position for your arms, which actually sounds pretty nice. Absolutely. And if you have any sort of forearm tilt to your uh, extensions, which we've talked about before, and I personally am a fan of, and I know a lot of folks are also, uh, the more surface area you have, the more friction you have between your skin and the pad, so the less likely you are to slide backwards. And so the you know, a couple of corollaries there, the less firmly you have to hold on to the uh, the handlebars of the extension, the where the shifters are, which I think is a big win because you really shouldn't have to be holding on to those guys if your fit's correct. And uh, some companies like TriRig are even doing a closed back scoop, which allows you to really plant your elbows and, and really relax into that position. So not that we're advocating any one brand over another. It's just really cool to see that, that companies are thinking about comfort um, in this critical area of the the bike for, well, for triathlon bikes anyway. The idea of safety is actually quite interesting too, because I remember when I was racing, I think it was Ironman Maryland, um, I hit a big pothole and I wasn't really paying attention, so I wasn't expecting it. And it almost bounced my arms out of the the armrests, uh, which would have been instant disaster. <laughs> but uh, so, um, so I'm quite grateful that that didn't happen. But seeing when you're not paying attention, or at least when you get caught off guard by something like that, having that extra security, um, it's, it, it really strikes home how, how important that could actually be. Absolutely. Yeah. That's not a, that's not a good way to end your Ironman day. I once, um, I was riding on a road that I hadn't ridden on before and this was silly because it was, I was doing some, uh, I was actually doing an outdoor FTP test and, uh, it was bright sunshine, but there was a lot of tree cover. So there was, it was like dappled shade, which is for me the hardest to see in. And there were speed bumps on this road that I didn't know about. And so I hit a speed bump at, I don't know, the 40-ish kilometers an hour in arrow. And I actually snapped one of my elbow pads. And it was a minor miracle that I didn't 
didn't do an endo. Um, it just so happened that when my arm fell through the pad that was supposed to support it, it hit the base bar and it kind of like bounced back and into an upright position. I'm not sure exactly how, but I stayed up. But that was uh, yeah, that was a, an interesting experience. I realized then that I was using the wrong bolts for the the, the pad. It wasn't the pad's fault. It was it was operator error. I think that's one of those times that you almost wish you had a GoPro. I think they get overused now, but uh, <laughs> seeing that kind of moment would be spectacular. Yeah. Yep. So one of the other interesting things that we've seen some innovation with uh, fairly recently is morph bars. Um, now, the the founder, uh, Frank Springett, was actually someone that we had met and, and I had talked to previously. Um, unfortunately, he passed away in an accident, but um, he had a really creative idea about these arrow bars that, that can go back and forth between being or acting as a base bar and acting as an arrow bar. And one of the big ideas is that you would have the, the brakes accessible to yourself all the time. Um, so you didn't have to go back and forth between the arrow bars and base bars to do an emergency braking maneuver. Um, now, because they were so radical, I think they weren't received maybe as readily as they could have been. But, um, but that's a sign of any big innovation or any big change. There's always going to be people reluctant to, to actually accepting them. Yeah, I've, uh, I've always been super curious about them. And then maybe on a, in a future build, I, I will give them a go. I also really like the fact that you save yourself a shifter, right? If you're running, you know, mm-hmm. DI2, let's say, instead of and there's a ton of value in having shifters, obviously, in TT position and on the, uh, on the hoods, on the brakes. Uh, this setup saves you one one set of those shifters since there's only one hand position. Absolutely. And they also allow themselves to be tilted quite easily, uh, where a lot of the more uh, integrated bars that we see now, you need special spacers and angled plates and things like that to get the kind of tilt that a lot of people are going for. So this is actually almost a step back to the basics where it, it provides that additional adjustability. Um, so I'm, I'm quite a big fan of these. I've, I've only tested them uh, indoors, I haven't actually been able to ride outside on them yet, just because um, it is a bit of a hassle to uh, refeed all the brake cables and things like that. But um, I'm very interested to try them out this year. Cool. Yeah. So do you have a set on your bike now? Uh, not on my bike, but I'm looking at them across the desk from me right now. So just kind of <laughs> tempting me. So today was minus 27 in the morning though. So it's... Uh, Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. But it did go up to minus three in the afternoon. So that's... Bomby. <laughs> that's, yeah, well, relatively speaking, but that's Calgary weather too. Still something I'm getting used to, those 20 plus degree shifts in the weather. I think our friend Alan Havde uses the morph bars too. I think he, I've seen him yes. photos with them. Yes, he does. I've done some virtual wind tunnel scans of him as well. And yeah, he definitely uses them. And he actually has some fairings that are built into the bars themselves to shield cool. his water bottle. Um, so this is almost like a step beyond what we were talking about with the um, the custom forearm molded pieces where he basically has that, but it also shifts around to be a, a base bar. And it also it also shrouds his water bottle, which is pretty cool. Very cool. All right. Want to talk about crank length? Yes. This is another area that I'm a big fan of discussing. Yes. Yeah, so this is where we touched upon this when we spoke with uh, Daniel Shada of Jabiamized um, two, three weeks ago, depending when this episode drops, um, and where he was he was very bullish on short cranks for triathletes and uh, time trialists. And we won't belabor the issue. I think uh, I think the evidence is really strong to support it. And it really does come down to increased comfort that's by going to a shorter crank length increased comfort without any sort of biomechanical disadvantage based on 
the research I've seen, my own experience, the experience of the athletes and athletes I've fitted, and uh, Daniel, who has a much, much larger uh, database of evidence than I do, um, really echoing what uh, my research and empirical evidence uh, found. Yeah, and I agree. I haven't seen anything to the contrary. Um, most of the evidence says, the, well, not the jury's out. It says there's no difference really in power production Yes. Um, for, for average riding. The one area you might suffer is if you're going for an all-out sprint where you're absolutely, absolutely at the limit of your, your gearing, um, where you have that extra moment arm, you have that extra length that you're applying the force over, that can provide a little bit more torque. But ultimately, for the average ride for a triathlete, when you're kind of stuck in the sweet spot wattage and you're not doing that big sprint, then you don't need that extra torque. You, what you need to do is maintain a constant power output. And, and that's where all the research is saying there's not really a difference. So I see no disadvantage in going with shorter cranks, but the aerodynamic advantage is huge. Agreed. Totally agreed. And the aerodynamic advantage comes from a comfort advantage first that then allows the rider to adopt a more aerodynamic position. Mm -hmm. One thing I'll say on the subject of torque that Andrew mentioned, listener, you should think about the length of your crank arms as part of your drivetrain. So if you're doing any kind of interesting, you know, gear math, where you're trying to figure out what the optimal, you know, cassette would be for a course or the optimal chain ring size would be for a course. And this was a question we did a couple uh, couple episodes ago for Frank Sarbara, where he asked me to calculate this for him. Think about the length of your crank arm as part of your drivetrain, because ultimately, look, the power comes from your legs and it goes into the pedal, which is attached to the crank arm. So if the crank arm is longer, so you are able to apply more torque, but the corollary is the cadence, your natural cadence is going to change. So this is what I mean. Um, you can expect a natural increase in cadence. So the reason this happens is, is because your muscles want to trace that circle that your foot makes with the pedal. They want to make it at the same speed. So your linear velocity along the circumference of that pedal circle wants to stay more or less the same. So now you've shrunk the, you've shrunk the circle because the diameter or the radius, whichever, is smaller, but your your muscles still won't contract at the same rate and make the circle at the same speed. So you will naturally see a slightly higher cadence that's proportional to the change in the, the crank arm length um, when you go to shorter cranks. Now, that is neither good nor bad. So it's not as if you just started pedaling faster and you're, you, you feel really good about yourself because you think, oh, well, uh, now my cadence is higher, which whether or not a higher cadence is a good thing or a bad thing is a, a topic for another episode altogether. But um, this is just something that that happens naturally. And it's something that your muscles like to do, as I mentioned. And it's also something that you need to maintain in order to maintain the same kind of power. So for if you're if you were generating, you know, whatever, however many watts you were generating at 90 RPM with a longer crank arm to generate the same kind of power at the same force, you have to make those circles a little bit faster. So you have to increase the velocity of the pedal. I didn't want to interrupt you because you were on a roll, but I was just going <laughs> to interject that uh, congratulations because I think for this episode, you're the one who had the explanation that lost half our listeners where it's usually me talking about radiation or heat transfer. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about linear velocity. Yes. And I was like, oh, is this angular velocity? No angular velocity. Yeah, angular <laughs> velocity would increase because that's what RPMs are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was a good explanation though. Um, so if anyone, if anyone's uncertain of that, uh, just write us in and uh, ask the question. We'll try and explain it to you again. Yeah, basically, you'll pedal faster with shorter cranks, and that's normal, and it actually doesn't change anything in your either the, the internal work that your body's doing, not very much anyway, uh, not measurable, or the external work that you're, you're doing to the bicycle. So 
RPM is going to go up with uh, with a shorter crank, and that's just the that's status quo. So one thing I love doing with these kind of questions or these kind of explanations is when you're trying to imagine it, take it to the extreme. So if you imagine riding a bike with a two foot long crank arm or like a sixty centimeter long crank arm, you're not going to be able to do ninety RPM on that. Um, you're going to have trouble spinning 30 or 40 RPM. But right. if you take it in the other direction where you have like a two centimeter crank arm, 90 RPM is going to seem very, very slow with that kind of that crank length. So when you take like to, to a ridiculous level, when you take these um, explanations or these imaginations of what's happening, um, I just find that that works so much better for me being able to reason out what is actually happening and why it might be happening. And then you can extrapolate that to the kind of the lengths or the sizes that that are relevant yeah. once you've justified it in your mind. That's a really good point, Andrew. That's that's a great uh, kind of mental exercise to do. I do have one question about this, which I don't have an answer to, and uh, I will have to go back to some experts that I work with and then uh, maybe get back to all our listeners. I coach an athlete who went up in length. He went from 145 millimeters, which is not really a very commonly available commercial crank length, could ask him what he was using, to 165, which is typically the shortest you can find um, in in most of the groupos out there. And he we saw a little bit of a dip in performance, and we're wondering if it, there were other factors or, or the crank length change was the factor. So um, I know when they did the testing, they, they went from – the one article I had really – exceptionally long and exceptionally short crank lengths, which included 145, but I now can't recall what they found. I think over a fairly broad range, they said it was okay. So that's what I told them off the cuff, saying that I think going to 145 to 165 wouldn't have made any difference in internal work. And if he was fine with 145, maybe he should have stuck with them. So I'm going to revisit that issue and, uh, and follow up with him. This is just an internal monologue. Yeah, actually, that's the first time I think I've heard of uh, 145 crank length. I've heard 155s, but uh, 145 is low. Yeah, I think Durace has a 155. I'm going to ask him what the heck he has for 145, and if hopefully he still has them so we can slap him on and see how he feels. Well, I guess one, one justification or one point that you brought up was having the same linear velocity of your foot. But the other thing that you're going to be running into is if your RPM, like if you maintain that same linear velocity, but now your RPM is 150 RPM, um, versus 90, um, again, going to the extremes, then your muscles are going to be firing a lot faster. So it might be that you do lose some efficiency when you make a, quite a large change like that. And proportionally going 20 millimeters longer from 145 to 165 is, uh, it's more than double the increase that, uh, you see from 165 to 175. So even though it's, 10 millimeter versus 20 millimeter gap, you're, you're proportionally increasing the, the 145s a lot more. So maybe that's part of it too. What's interesting is that what doesn't change is the, is the speed of contraction of the muscle. That does not change. So that's what the studies found. What will change is the shift from, you know, which muscles are firing. Because obviously, in, you know, if we draw a circle, a pedal circle that, that we make with our feet, with our pedals attached to our feet, then different muscles are dominant through different parts of that pedal circle, through different parts of that 360 degrees. So I think what you mean, Andrew, is that you will have to switch muscles more rapidly in a, in a much shorter crank. But the actual rate of contraction so the rate of of the the change in length of your muscles that does not change provided that you know your your cadence changes in uh, proportion to the change in the crank 
arm length. Yes, I think frequency of contraction is what I was looking for. Right. Okay. I think it's time to pull ourselves out of this weed, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this weed patch, um, and talk about uh, more nerdy stuff. Uh, let's uh, what let's talk about ceramic bearings, Andrew. What do you think about ceramic bearing upgrades? This is an interesting one because um, friction is obviously your enemy, but um, I I'm kind of on the fence for this. This is I would say dollars per performance. Um, it's it's maybe not the best investment, but you could look at it as something that can be optimized because there there is some residual friction. I don't think anyone will argue that. And and having uh, just reduced rotational resistance is going to improve your performance. Now, is it going to improve it such that you go from back of the pack to Kona qualification? Nah, not that much, but... <laughs> Um, what they're, well, what ceramic speed claims is somewhere around eight to 10 Watts. Um, I think that's a bit on the high side. It just, it doesn't seem like that would be practical. Um, it could be that if you ride your tri bike through, you know, a bunch of mud before a race, then maybe you could, maybe you could save eight to 10 Watts that way. So if you're looking at like a really dirty drivetrain versus a brand new fresh one, it could be that extreme. But um, but I do question how large the, the gain could be on something like that. Yeah, for a little bit of context, folks, for uh, when we talk about drivetrain and ceramic speed specifically. So ceramic speed, for those of you who don't know, are uh, most likely the world's largest manufacturer of cycling ceramic stuff. And usually this means bearings. And uh, again, this is probably pretty obvious, but I'm going to belabor this just for the sake of talking about it completely the bearings on your bike where do you find bearings on your bike so the obvious ones are wheels uh in the bottom bracket which is where your crank connects to the frame um in your pedal spindles but that's that's we're we're not talking about that here um and in the pulleys of your rear derailleur and the jockey wheels um you also find they're not they're not bearings they're bushings in your chain which is a really big deal and that's why dirty dry dirty chains are really, really slow. Uh, but the ceramic speed products, the ones that we're talking about right now are wheel bearings. So there's two of them, one front, one rear, bottom bracket, and the uh, jockey wheels in your rear derailleur. So when, when Andrew talks about, what was it eight to 10 watts? Uh, yeah, that was their claim on their website. That was a claim. Yeah. So he's talking about those those three components. Well, two, two wheels and you know the other two. And also we must be said that, and this is a pet peeve of both of us, I think, when manufacturers present data, they often <laughs> don't mention the details. And so one of the key details, whenever you're looking at aero data, friction data, rolling resistance data, it is how fast are you going? Because if you put this bicycle at 150 kilometers an hour, yeah, those friction losses are going to be very, very high. So saving even some small margin is going to look really, really big. And that's why most aero test data is at 50 kilometers an hour, which is not a realistic speed for unless you're, you know, a <laughs> world-class time trialist in a short course. Yeah, that is not me, that's for sure. No, uh, it's not anybody. <laughs> so it's me with a, on a big downhill with a tailwind. One thing I will say to add to that or to kind of blend in the difference between the the, the friction gain with the, the jockey wheels, um, one thing that you're seeing more commonly now is these oversized pulley wheels or oversized jockey wheels. And yes. Can you explain why that's useful? Yes. Uh, so the difference in those actually and you can't to, use angular velocity. You can't use that term <laughs> in your explanation. It, it is stricken from my vocabulary for this, <laughs> but only for this. <laughs> okay. um, so what's happening is 
as your chain is going around a corner, it's trying to bend. And that's when the bushings come into play. Like they, they don't really lose anything when it's in the straight. But uh, as soon as you start to bend the chain and unbend it, that's when there's friction internally. And that's when these bushings are creating resistance and, and taking away power. So when you go through a very tight corner, um, having your chain go around a very small radius, like a typical jockey wheel, then that's, that's when you get a lot of bending and then straightening and then bending and straightening because you go through it a couple times with the, the cassette and then the two jockey wheels. Um, in order to avoid that or to minimize the losses there, the oversized pulley wheels, they make them a larger radius so that they don't have to bend as far. So it's much closer to a straight chain. Um, so the, the idea there is just you're, you're reducing the frictional losses within the chain, even though it's not the chain that you're increasing size or changing at all. Um, but you're actually reducing the losses within the chain because you have a smaller, uh, a smaller curvature or larger curvature that you're going around. Yeah. So basically your links bend less relative to one another and that's what saves you a little bit of friction. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. So the the downside is um, these stick out into the wind a lot farther. So I've heard arguments that any gains are offset by aerodynamics. And oh, interesting. Yeah, so I'm a little on the fence about that one. It's it's pretty dirty air back there, and I don't know if anyone's done a really comprehensive study of exactly what's happening in the flow by the time you get that far back. Um, certainly if it were something protruding on the front like that, that would be huge aerodynamic loss, but at the rear, it's kind of hidden behind the crank and behind your legs and things are kind of messy there. So I would say that one's kind of split. Like it, it may add a little extra drag or it will add a little extra drag, but it may be outweighed by the positive benefits there. Cool. But they do look pretty badass, especially if they're they like do. a color to match something that that's you're in the uh, look pro category. But if they're anodized, though, you get these nice clean jockey wheels and you have to keep your chain clean so that it doesn't get all greasy. <laughs> and well, everyone knows how triathletes are terrible at bike maintenance. So that's the natural enemy of the triathlete. Since we're talking about drivetrain friction, cleaning and lubing your chain, even without thinking too hard about what kind of lube you're using, if your chain is clean and it is lubed, it's going to be pretty fast. Some lubes are going to be faster than others, and depending who you believe, some lubes are much faster than others, but usually those are claims made by the people who make those lubes. But one thing that is certain, that a, that a chain that is dirty or a chain that is dry, that doesn't have lube, is costing you non-insignificant amount of watts, which is one of the probably the most useful thing you're getting when you're getting your bike tuned up before a race, uh, unless you have, you know, mechanical problems with your bike, which obviously should be sorted, is that chain clean and lube. So if you're a bike shop or um, your your local mechanic, if a service that if there's a service they offer where they will clean your chain, like proper clean it, usually they'll they might use like an ultrasonic degreaser or something, or at least a degrease bath, um, which usually involves taking the whole thing apart, which is why people don't usually do that at home. But if that's a service that they offer and then they relube it with something that's like a, a quick lube, a, a fast lube, then that is one of the best ways to buy speed. If you hear any kind of squeaking at all. Um, first of all, you're, you're converting mechanical motion or kinetic energy into acoustic energy. So that's a loss right there. Yep. But uh, what actually causes squeaking and high-frequency noises like that is basically the two surfaces are grabbing and then letting go and then grabbing and then letting go, and they're doing that thousands of times a second. Um, so that's what gives you that high-pitched squeak. But that's, that's usually when something's under-lubricated. So 
if it sounds dry or if you sound or if you hear any squeaking or anything like that, then it is definitely time to look at your chain. And honestly, for the price of a new chain, they're not all that expensive. So I would replace them more often than you have to. Yeah, you can check chain wear. There's a, there's there are easy ways to do that, and the indicators usually are 15 bucks or so. But also, depending on the type of lube you use, specifically for dry lubes, they typically don't last very long on your chain. So depending on how much you ride and the conditions you ride in, you may need to reapply quite frequently. So this is something that's worth ta- looking at the manufacturer's website and seeing what they recommend. But especially with dry lubes, keep in mind you do win a little bit of uh, lower roll with a little bit of lower friction, and probably picking up less gunk off the road. But there is definitely a cost to having to reapply them more often. Not a physical money cost, although if you're buying the the, the ceramic speed stuff, it's literally super expensive. Any product you use, you do have to reapply it a little bit more often if it's the dry wax-based lube. And even fully waxing your chain, um, that's something that uh, a lot of people do even themselves before races. So it's it's important to start with something that's super clean before you do this. But I know that people have had a lot of success with it. And then there's other chains that you can get off the shelf that are pre-waxed. Yeah, um, but yeah. these are generally just good for one race and that's it. Like by the end of the race, the wax is kind of wearing off. And that's the downside of having something that's so uh, specifically prepared for an event. Yeah, for sure. You can re-wax it, right? So it's not as if your chain is shot. It's just, you know, it's uh, it's a process you'd have to repeat. So it's mm-hmm. typically best saved for really important events when when the, the seconds it's going to save you is, it will count. Of course, compared to a dirty chain or a dry chain, it's, it's going to be more like minutes than seconds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although you might get that intimidation of uh, a competitor hearing you squeaking up behind them. <laughs> Can you imagine if you get passed by somebody on like a, on a, something that sounds like a rusty Canadian tire bike? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to imagine that right now. That's tough. That's demoralizing. Okay. Let's uh, jump off of chains and but stick with drivetrain and talk about uh, 1X versus 2X. Yeah, this is this is super interesting. And Michael, you found a good article about this, and maybe we can post it in the show notes. But um, looking at the efficiency of the the different setups, um, so quite often people go to like a one by system because well, you can get rid of a derailleur and you've got slightly less weight. Although I would argue that doesn't really make a difference. Um, and they do say that aerodynamically it's slightly better, which I would tend to agree with. There's no reason that it wouldn't be. Um, right. But the, the contentious part is what happens to your, your chain now? Um, when, you're, when you're typically shifting, just going through your gears, um, especially with the DI2 system, it'll automatically choose the, the front derailleur that kind of puts the chain under the least stress condition. And having this cross-chaining, um, first of all, you can hear how much difficulty the chain is having and just the noise that it's making when you're cross-chaining, when you've got, say, your big chain ring and your, your biggest cassette gear, and it's kind of pulled diagonally. Um, so like we were saying earlier, that noise is usually indicative of having lower efficiency. So having this cross-chaining event or avoiding this cross-chaining event is, is very important in maintaining just the optimum efficiency. Yeah, so uh, you threw out a couple of terms which I want to define for folks, again, just for the sake of not leaving anybody out. When we talk about 1X versus 2X drivetrains, this refers to the number of chain rings in the front. Uh, So uh, 1X means just a one chain ring and no front derailleur, uh, and that's where you you do get some of the claimed aerodynamic benefits, which, as I agree with Andrew, there probably are some. We don't know what the magnitude is really. 
Um, your shifting is simplified in a 1X because you only have to shift one uh, one derailleur, really. Uh, and then a 2X is the traditional road uh, setup where you have two front chain rings. And so you have obviously two, two derailleurs. And when Andrew's talking about cross-chaining, he's talking about having the chain on a diagonal. So if you look straight up at your bike, if the, you know, the chain that's on the front chain ring and the, the part of the chain that's on your cassette cog, if they're separated horizontally, that is, you know, in a, in a line perpendicular to the center line of the bike, the more that's, the more that spacing is, the greater that distance, the more your quote unquote cross chain and the more costly that, uh, that gear combination is. And it's costly precisely because of what we were just talking about chain drag in that if you can imagine since the, the links on the chain ring are all, um, roughly aligned in line with the, the the bike and the same happens at on the cassette the chain that travels f- from the chain ring to the cassette is now on an angle and since the chain does not like to be on an angle what you're doing is you're creating more friction between the plates of the chain and that's where you're getting quite a bit of friction so uh, this is why cross chaining um, and Andrew threw out the classic example of big big so big chain ring big cassette cog or little little small chain ring small cassette cog that's not where you want to be and usually your bike will tell you because it'll make noise it'll be like no I don't like this and so if you're paying attention you will you'll fix it um, but it's possible to ride like that and some people do and uh, there you're kind of you're kind of giving up watts now in a one by setup where you only have one chain ring you don't really have a decision of which chain ring to be in uh, but in order to make that system work you have a wide range cassette so you have a, a really small small cog and a really big big cog in the back um, and then if you're on a hilly-ish course where you do have to go through the range of uh, gear ratios then you're traveling up and down that cog all day long and anytime you're in you know on the towards the smaller cogs you're cross-chained and anytime you're towards the bigger cogs you're cross-chained and there's probably a sweet spot of one or two somewhere in the middle where you're you're efficient um that's where you you know that's where the manufacturer assumes you want to be it's simpler to shift but you have to be quite um strategic in choosing the size of the cog and the um, cassette range in order to optimize what you want to do that's actually quite a good point because i know of some pros that um that will actually have their mechanics optimized and they know that they should be riding at roughly the speed for most of the course so they will choose their cassette and their chain ring such that at the least amount of stretch or the least amount of cross chaining they get the gear ratio that they need so they hit their target cadence at their target speed and that maximizes efficiency and I was really surprised to see just the magnitude of some of the numbers and the efficiency losses um, between the two systems here. And I can see why it'd be worth uh, chasing after. Yeah. So before we jump into that, that's exactly what what I did for Frank, um, which was one of the questions in my Q&A episode from three or four weeks back now, where he told me he was doing Texas. He thought that he was going to hold, you know, 250 watts, I believe, if I remember correctly. And his cadence, his natural cadence at that wattage is around 80 watts or sorry, 80 RPM. And he wanted to know and usually based on his aerodynamics, we know he's going to be traveling roughly 40, 41 kilometers an hour at that wattage. So knowing that, what chain ring do we want and what cassette do we want? And because Texas is quite flat, also Texas is probably canceled. I'm sorry, Frank. Thank you, coronavirus. <laughs> but, um, oh shit, I promised we wouldn't talk about coronavirus. Okay. <laughs> we almost made it. We almost made it. Well, we're not going to talk about 
arc lengths or angular velocity as to make it up for you to make it up to you guys <laughs> so uh, that's how that's how you do that design right if you are running a one by and you really want to optimize it that's the kind of thinking you need to be doing and i would argue that one by for reasons we're going to outline in 30 seconds is only really effective if you have a flat course with almost no shifting mm-hmm so do you want to go over some of the the numbers then? Yeah. So this where we take this is uh, this was an article in Velo News that was the testing was done by Friction Facts, I believe, uh, by well they call it Ceramic Speed, but it was the Friction Facts guys that did this because of course Ceramic Speed now owns Friction Facts, and so they compared a SRAM one by to a Shimano uh, two by where they the two by was a fifty three thirty nine, so a standard non compact, and the SRAM was a I think a forty eight and the cassette range was so forty eight front cassette range was forty two to ten. Uh, so a really, really big range, which is what you really need to get the same kind of drivetrain ratios. And so the surprising fact, and so what they measured was across the different gear ratios, so across the whole range of the one by and across the reasonable ranges of the of the two by what was the friction of the system? And so they compared the two. And the surprising thing to me was that, are you, are you ready for this? At no point, if you're in the correct gear ratio for the two by, if you're not cross-chaining, at no point is the one by system have less friction. So this is what kind of blew me away. Absolutely. Yeah. I think looking at their graph there, there are two or three data points where if you're cross-chaining, the two by system is slower. But other than that, there's like, basically, you could blindly throw a dart and, and do a better job with efficiency. Yeah. Um, and even those data points aren't that large in magnitude, like the, the largest difference at the, the high gear or like the high speed gear ratios. Um, it looks like a 19 watt loss, which is insane yeah. um, versus a 13 watt loss. So um, that's six watts difference. That's that's a big difference. That's a big difference for like for yeah for just having a different choice of chain, and that's at the biggest ratio. So fifty three by eleven versus forty eight by ten, which is roughly the same uh, gear ratio. It's essentially the same. There's a six watt difference if you're running one by. So if you go, like to go fast, and you really want a one by system, you got to be careful about how you select it because you could be leaving a lot of watts on the table. Yeah, yeah. This this was really eye opening for me. Um, like I'd never considered going to a one by system and. I will say that the majority of people who run the one by systems, like you're looking at a cross bike or something where you don't want the extra complexity or the risk of breaking. Um, So that reliability improvement is probably worth the offset in in performance. Totally agree. But um, when you're dealing with triathlon where nominally your bike should be pretty clean and pretty well maintained and you're not bouncing off rocks or anything like that, uh, or if you are, you've had a really bad day and probably (laughs) six watts doesn't make a difference now. Uh, but yeah, I was just absolutely blown away by this. And to be honest, this actually makes it seem like under the right circumstances, and I'm putting that as a big qualifier, under the right circumstances, the ceramic speed claims could actually be quite valid. Yeah, if you're running a one-by system? Yeah, yeah. So there, there may be some circumstances. And that, again, this comes to cherry-picking data and advertising and blah, blah, blah. So it's, um, sure. it's yeah, it could be better to have, or you could get that eight to ten watt improvement by having a ceramic speed system. But uh, I would say when you're looking at the price price benefit ratio, um, the the two by versus investing the fifteen hundred dollars for a full ceramic set of bearings, like you're better off just to go with a two by drivetrain. 
Yeah, uh, totally agree. Which is one point you you bring up a number which we should have mentioned when we were talking about the ceramic bearing upgrades. Uh, this is a key point we forgot to mention, but we're mentioning it now. To it looks like based on the pricing on the Ceramic Speed website that in order to upgrade your wheels, your bottom bracket, and the install the oversized pulleys with ceramic bearings, you're looking at fifteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. U.S. plus installation. So uh, quite a quite an expensive upgrade. Um, that was relevant to the earlier conversation we were having. Yes, and actually, I was uh, sneaking that in there because I realized after we moved away, <laughs> we had forgotten uh, to talk about pricing. Well, there you go. So back to one by versus two by. Now, I'm not poo pooing one by by any means. There, as Andrew mentioned, there are definitely use cases like in mountain biking and in, uh, I would say, in gravel or cross, where you're not super concerned about every single watt and you're more worried about simplicity because you don't want to be stuck in the wrong gear. Uh, also, front shifting under loads a pain in the ass, right? So as anyone's mm-hmm. ever experienced, if you're trying to go up a, a really steep, short bank, which happens all the time in mountain cross gravel, um, and you for, you didn't shift on time, you could be out of luck. And so if you don't have to worry about that, that could be a huge win. So um, definitely see the value for one by in those applications. Triathlon, I really, really don't. Um, based on this kind of data, I can't imagine that the aerodynamic losses for uh, a two by system versus one by would be would amount to anywhere near the kind of the four to six watts that you see in terms of a um, a friction delta for the higher speeds. Mm-hmm. So why don't we move on? Um... I think tires, and let's lump this as tires, braking, and handling all together, because I think they're all very closely related. Sure. Um, So in general, tires are what connect you to the ground. So I'd say they're fairly important. So if you have bad tires, um, you're either going to be increasing your rolling resistance, or you're not going to be able to make a corner, um, both of which are bad outcomes. So having the right tire for the job is crucial. And I would say that Mountain bikers or cyclocross people know this much better than most road bikers because road bikers rarely push the limit. You always think, oh, it's a nice clean road. I've got lots of grip. But the reality is you can actually make up or lose a lot of time. Um, both in terms of rolling resistance and cornering. Yeah, and that's uh, the rolling resistance is a conversation that those of you who are a little bit more, you know, on the nerdy side of cycling probably have heard the term and have paid attention to it. But the cornering one is super interesting. So we're going to leave that one for last because it's kind of a fun one. So, But let's tackle rolling resistance first. And this is something that um, if you're paying attention to it, great. If you're not paying attention to it, you should. And uh, I'm going to explain to you why. And the, 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 I think the kind of the bottom line is that good tires, good tubes, correct tire pressure is probably maybe not the cheapest, but one of the cheapest ways to save watts on a bicycle. And that, I'm going to plant that flag and stake that claim. So in order to, um, to kind of back this up, I'm going to refer to one of my favorite websites, bicyclerollingresistance.com, which we'll link to. They have tests of absolutely every tire that you can imagine, um, touring, road, I'm pretty sure they have gravel and cross, mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And so you can really compare the rolling resistance as well as they actually do some interesting durability and puncture tests, which we won't talk about here. But uh, um, a really great website if you're thinking of, of selecting a tire and you just don't want to just go buy, you know, what, what everyone in your group rides and you want to do your own research, strongly recommend this website, especially if you like charts and graphs, which, shit, who doesn't? <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> right. So, okay, very quickly, um, one of my favorite examples of why 
tire rolling resistance matters is uh, Lionel Sanders. So when Lionel was doing, I forget which race this was, but this was an Ironman, and this is when he was already pro and he was already, you know, kicking serious butt. He was riding on Continental Gator skins. And uh, for those of you who know tires, uh, Conti Gator skins are what you use to ride to work. Uh, they're the, the kind of the, the tank of Continental road tires. They are really heavy, not really heavy. They're quite heavy. They're very thick um, and they are, have very good puncture protection. And knock wood, I have never hold a gator skin and I've put a lot of kilometers on them. So I'll use them for training and I'll use them for, for bike commuting. They're an amazing tire, but they are slow. <laughs> so let me tell you just how slow they are. So per tire for a Continental Gator skin at, let's say, 100 pounds, which is a reasonable uh, pounds of pressure, PSI, which is a reasonable pressure, uh, Continental Gator skins per tire come in at 20 watts. What does that mean? Uh, the Bicycle Rolling Resistance website tests tires at 29 kilometers per hour and typically tests some new. So a new tire with a butyl tube that's a Conti Gator skin at 29 kilometers an hour at 100 pounds of pressure costs 20 watts to turn. So if you've got two tires, unless you're riding a unicycle, that's 40 watts, 40 and a half watts. Compare that to a much higher end tire. Uh, let's say, keep it in the Continental brand, the Grand Prix 5000, which was released a couple years ago now, or maybe a year and a half. Uh, really great tire. You see them on a lot of bikes for very, very good reason. At the same speed, so 29 kilometers an hour, at the same pressure, our drum roll, 10.7 watts. So double that, again, because that's per tire. It's uh, 21 and a half watts versus 40 and a half watts. So you're seeing a humongous 20 watt difference. Now think about, you know, think about your last FTP test or your last race and what you could do with 20 watts if you just found 20 watts lying on the road or strapped to your, your the rim of your bicycle. <laughs> Or in that motor in your down tube. Yeah, or that motor in your down tube. That's right. So look, these aren't cheap tires, but these are perfectly, you know, perfectly common, commercially available. Any performance bike store will have them. And they're not exceptional. You know, the top end Vittorias, the top end um, uh, Pirellis or the top end uh, Specialized or any of the big brands or, you know, Veloflex. No, Veloflex is a little slower. Um Schwalbe, any of those guys are going to be in this range. They might be 10 to 12 watts per tire. That's that's a pretty reasonable range. But Gator skins are 20. So that's why rolling resistance matters. And that's why it's the cheapest way to buy speed uh, in, in selecting the right tire. Yeah. And I think you started that off with uh, talking about Lionel. So you were, did you have a specific example or just that he was running Gator skins as as a pro he was he was winning races and running gator skins and he was because uh, i think he, i heard an interview with him where he was saying he was just afraid of flats um and sure everyone's afraid of flats and you're much less likely to flat uh, a gator skin and at his speed because rolling resistance is not like aerodynamic drag where it's not proportional to the the cube of the velocity it is proportional it's linearly proportional right andrew to velocity mm -hmm. yeah so yeah it, if this is at 29 kilometers an hour, if Lionel's going at 45 kilometers an hour, which is, let's say, 50% faster, 50% faster, um, then instead of losing 20 watts for his front and rear wheel, he was losing 30 watts. And even if you're Lionel Sanders, 30 watts is not anything to uh, thumb your nose at. Absolutely not. And one of the interesting comparisons I've actually heard is that in the amount of time you would lose on a course, like any full distance course, really, or a course like Kona, um, you could actually pull over and change a flat and still be faster. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. With with 30, 30 watts, twenty watts, that's a that's a humongous difference. Those are the kinds of gains you do not get. Those are the kind of gains that you get from like wearing a flappy T-shirt and a race suit. <laughs> Those are the kinds of gains you get from like riding a road bike versus a tri bike, for example. Like if you're riding sitting up yeah, on yeah. a road bike, well, maybe in like on the in the drops versus a, a well fit tri bike. Like these are serious, serious gains. Um, and that's why we want to talk about them. And looking at them back to back compared to something like the ceramic speed where you're fighting for that eight to 10 Watts. And even that is, you know, some people question it and there's been independent testing to, to try and prove that, but there's like for what, a 10th of the price, less than a 10th of the price, you're able to get what's essentially free speed by comparison. Um, so it's yeah. just an incredible benefit that you get from having the proper tires. Uh, and same goes for air pressure. Um, so yes. that's let's talk about this. Yeah, this this one's a really interesting topic. And I would say for more information, if you head over to the Flow Cycling blog, they've got some interesting tests about it because um, they've really been on top of the importance of air pressure, both for aerodynamics and for rolling resistance. But you end up with this um, this interesting curve. So you've got two components. Um, that contribute to uh, the amount of rolling resistance you have. There's one that's um, hysteresis. So it's basically the amount of energy that's lost in deforming and reforming the tires. So if you think that flat patch that's touching the ground, the higher your pressure, the less you're deforming that each time. So you would assume that there's less energy that, uh, um, that actually goes to that deformation, the reformation of the, the, the shape of the tire. And that's, that's true. And so people were thinking, oh, we got to crank our tire pressures way up. Um, and you do get faster to a point. But there's this other um, form of rolling resistance that's only really been examined or expanded upon in the last couple of years that's actually due to vibrations. So this doesn't always show up in the, um, in the testing of rolling resistance. I believe in the bicycle rolling resistance, they have a... Um, for, forget what you call it, but they've got the texture on their their roller. It's like a diamond. Yeah. it's like a diamond plate or checker plate, yes. depending if you're American or Canadian. I forget which country calls it which, but you'll <laughs> understand. Uh, apologies to our European and overseas listeners because I have no idea what you call this stuff. But it's it's the kind of steel that has a sort of like it's like raised- a trend. Yeah, so that it's it's a little bit less anti-slip. So that's what that's what he uses for his rolling resistance. But I suspect he doesn't take vibration too much into account because his tests are always there's always a um, there's never a cost to higher air pressure. So his rolling the rolling resistance reported on his website is always 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 lower at higher at higher tire pressure. Yeah. So this the second component you you often see it come into play. Um, when people go up really high in pressure and this is where you're kind of exceeding the maximum recommended pressure on the side of the wheel. Um, and people do it, uh, not recommended. And the downside of this is quite often, uh, if you look at Ironman events or listen to Ironman events, um, people will inflate their tires in the early morning when it's cool and they'll go right up to that limit in pressure. Uh, and then as the sun comes out and everything heats up, you hear a whole bunch of bangs in the, (laughs) in the transition area as the tires heat up and the pressure yep. increases and then it exceeds what it can take. Um, the ideal gas law is a bitch. Yeah, it is. It's hard to avoid. But the um, this other component due to vibrations can actually increase quite a bit 
Um, if you can imagine riding a steel wheel over even a fairly smooth asphalt surface, you're going to get a ton of vibrations in there. And those actually manifest themselves in terms of inefficiency. So, um, so you're losing power when you go too high. So I actually tend to go to the lower side of air pressure where um, you've got that little bit of safety built in. I don't go too much lower, but where I used to do like 110, 115 PSI for my inflation pressure, I'll often go to 90 or 95 max now. And the, the other nice thing is it's actually a bit smoother, so it's less tiring for the, the ride. Yeah, so there is no, I agree with Andrew, everything that Andrew said, there's no real right answer for everybody in every situation. But here's how I encourage folks to think about it. Generally speaking, on smooth surfaces, so if you know you're racing or riding on a road that's really smooth, there is probably every reason to ride as high air pressure as the manufacturer suggests is safe. Now, here's the caveat here. Now, your tire could have one max air pressure, but your rims could have a totally different air pressure. And here's the fun fact about that is that you have to pick the lower number because most tires are rated to like 140 PSI, sometimes even higher, because that's what they've tested on a skinny rim. Now, if you put that tire on one of the modern aerodynamic wide rims where the, you know, the the hooks of the clincher, and then we're talking about clincher tires, obviously not tubulars, which don't blow off, um, where the, the, the spacing between the clinchers is now, you know, 20 millimeters or, you know, as high as that. Uh, now you're creating a totally different beast. And the reason for this, and it's a little bit, it's a little bit convoluted, but bear with me because you know, I'm going to go down this road regardless, <laughs> is the wider the rim, the bigger your tire effectively becomes when it's mounted to it. So uh, a 25 millimeter tire, which is pretty standard for race tires these days, 23, 25, uh, on a wider rim is going to measure bigger. So why does that matter? It's because now the air that's inside that tire, the air pressure inside that tire is acting on a larger surface area of tire pushing it off of the off of the hooks. If you can imagine a skinnier rim, the tire forms a sort of a light bulb shape. So part of the pressure acting inside that tire if you take a cross section through it is keeping it in, keeping it keeping it hooked onto the the hooks of the rim. Now, if you spread those hooks out and the tire is no longer no longer looks like a light bulb, the profile of the tire it looks more like uh, a mound or a semicircle. Now, more of that pressure is pushing the tire all away from the hooks and up away from the rim. So the the upshot of this is that it now becomes easier to blow that tire off the rim, as, as Andrew suggested. So it's super important. And the flow guys, who you referenced earlier, they do a, a really good job of explaining this too. Um, they and every rim manufacturer will publish a maximum air pressure on their rims. Uh, I know Envy has a really good uh, air pressure chart on their website as well, which tells you, you know, depending on the rim and the tire width, this is the maximum pressure you should run. I think they're a little bit you know, bearish on pressures. They want to aim low so to keep your tires on your rims, which makes all the sense. But the, the point is the wider the rim, the lower the maximum air pressure. And that's because at certain air pressures, you will start to blow those bad boys off. And what people are realizing now too, is that uh, just in general, the rolling resistance of wider tires is less. Um, so instead of a long, narrow patch, uh, the contact patch, you're getting a wider but shorter contact patch that actually has less overall deformation and energy loss. 
That is true for the same air pressure. So here's the yes. thing. Here's the thing that I think people are misunderstanding is they they hear that advice and that's true for the same air pressure. But if you compare, let's say a 23 at 120 pounds and a 25 at 80 pounds, the 23 at 120 is going to roll faster. Uh, again, on smooth surface. If it's rough surface, then who knows? But uh, um, that is true for sure. That's why that's another reason why sometimes wider is better. But wider tends to run at lower air pressure. So then it you start to think you start to kind of have a seesaw effect. Yep, fair point. Yeah, so air pressure. Um, this is well. I think the the discussion we just had justifies investing in a good pump because if you have something that's basically like a random number generator, like I used to have, um, <laughs> you're not doing yourself any favors. Having a high quality pump that is able to reproduce pressures accurately is probably one of the more important things in getting the setup done properly. Um, so not only will you not blow up your tire when it heats up in transition, um, but you'll also be able to dial in your performance quite a bit more. Agreed. Uh, one last little bit about tires before we move on to, well, we're going to stay with tires, but we're, before we move on to cornering, uh, about tire choice is choice of two. <laughs> so we mentioned that buying fast tires is a really great way to save money. Buying fast tubes is a really good way to go too. Um, and those of you, again, who have been in cycling for a little while or who pay attention may have heard of latex tubes versus butyl tubes. Again, a very quick lesson uh, in material science. I don't know what this would be. Yeah, so most bicycle tubes are the black ones that you see are uh, butyl rubber, which is great because it keeps air in really well. It's cheap to make. And, uh, you know, that's why they are the mainstay of all bicycle inner tubes. The other option in materials is this material called latex or natural rubber, kind of the first rubber that was out there in the, in the rubber world. Uh, latex is cool because it is, uh, while it's more permeable to air, which means that they lose air faster, which means you have to pump them up more frequently, which again is like, you know, lubing your chain more frequently. It's a little bit more maintenance. The benefit is noticeably lower rolling resistance. So uh, the question is, how much lower? So a latex tube versus a standard tube at 100 PSI, which is, you know, close to what Andrew runs his tires. It's what I run my tires usually on, on smooth race courses. Uh, you're looking at around 2 watts per tire. So you're looking at around um, 3 to 4 watts total savings, which doesn't sound like much. But if you're thinking about the fact that that's a, look, that's a $15 purchase, Per tube, so they are a little bit more expensive versus like a you know five dollar purchase for a butyl tube. Uh, it's actually pretty good watts per dollar investment. Yeah, there's actually quite a few tips here that I think are, are very inexpensive but good performance performers, <laughs> good uh, value performers. I don't know how you want to say that. Not like I did, I yeah. guess. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of good ways to uh, to not spend a lot to get some watts out of your bike. Exactly, yeah. And I've also heard that latex is less, um, or sorry, more puncture resistant just because it's a more flexible rubber. Um, so if you do hit yeah. a pothole, you're you're more likely to get away with it. And the, I, the caveat I would say to having the fast air loss is that you're actually more likely to check your tire pressure before you go out. If, if you are True. running these and you'll typically be at a more optimum pressure because you're checking it instead of just assuming, oh, it's probably around the same pressure as I left it last time. Yep. No, that's a very good point. That's, uh, that's what I want to say about tubes. So, Andrew, do you want to talk about uh, cornering costs? Because this is something really cool that, uh, that Art put together, a little simulation. Yeah. So um, this is something we were wondering about a long time ago because I think it was um, – it was the Wasaga Triathlon, the Multisport Canada Wasaga Beach Triathlon, which is one of my favorite races. I love that one. Um, but 
there's a section where you're kind of going through town, through Wasaga Beach, and there's a whole bunch of corners, and it's maybe 100 meters and then a corner and then 200 meters and then a corner. So there was one female pro rider that Art was uh, going neck and neck with, and he noticed that every time they went around a corner, she would catch up and pass him. Uh, and then he'd muscle her down on straights, and then she'd catch up and pass, and then he'd muscle her down. And it got him thinking that uh, I'm... <laughs> First of all, he's not very good at cornering, which he'll be the first to admit. Um, but also, there's a lot to be gained and lost in doing a good corner. Um, so Art, being who he is and being a very good programmer, uh, he went and made a simulation of himself versus kind of a pro rider. And in the simulation, he made a couple assumptions. So he said, okay, we've got a five-kilometer course, um, although the distance doesn't matter, and we'll get into that, but um, a five-kilometer course, but one turn every kilometer and the comparison was a, a beginner rider um, cornering at one third of a G and then a an advanced rider cornering at 0.8 G's so for reference like a, a car that handles well will often be able to almost hit one G of cornering um, so when you're getting into the 0.8 range that's a pretty high cornering speed in force um, so what he found from this was super interesting. So he took his baseline at 240 watts and in that time made up, this is one corner every kilometer, which is not really a lot of corners. Um, it would take seven watts of extra power to chase down that, that rider who can handle better. Um, so this is what he was seeing in the Wasaga race. He was, uh, he was outpowering this other rider, but, uh, she just kept coming up to him because she made up so much time during the, uh, the corners themselves. And like, it, it does make a big difference. And there's a reason that in the descents, when you look at like the, the grand tour races, the, the descents are what really separate some riders because there are some guys who are super good on the uphills, but then are terrible at descents. Uh, so if they don't crash, they'll just at least lose a lot of time. And yeah, you see this time and again, and there's, there are certain people who are descending experts and they can take those corners with more confidence, take the right lines and just do them better overall. And you have a lot to gain or lose. And I think this is something that people just pass off and say, oh, triathletes, you never have to worry about cornering. It's not really that important. But I actually think that it is very important. I agree entirely. And then, it, so in the case that Andrew just presented, the important component was that uh, the simulation took into account a turn every kilometer. And you may think that ra those race courses don't exist. But I coached a bunch of folks who did the Rotterdam ITU race in 2018, I think I want to say. And in Rotterdam, there, one of one of my guys counted all the turns. And I hope I'm not making this up. But it was something like in the 40k Olympic distance triathlon, it was somewhere in the on the order of two turns per kilometer on average, something like 70 or 80 turns. Now, if I'm wrong, <laughs> send me your hate mail. But it was a stupid amount of turns. And this simulation would have been, you know, quite accurate. Well, I would probably even have to double the wattage required to make up that kind of distance or that kind of turn density. Uh, so it really does matter if you're, if you're, you know, if you're racing a course that has absolutely no turns or very, very few course turns on a long course race, then you're probably fine. But it's, uh, it's something that definitely does make a difference. Now I wonder in the, in the simulation or in reality, how the weight of a rider plays into the formula. Now, would it be more costly to be a poor 
Turner if you're also a heavier rider? I, I would say yes, because you have to decelerate and re-accelerate to a uh, to higher degree. Intuitively, yeah. Intuitively, I would have to I would have to agree with you. That's that's why I asked the question. And because it's 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 based on like lateral acceleration. So theoretically, the more force, the more downward force you have, the more grip you generate. So that should balance out, and you should be able to take a corner at the same speed regardless of what weight you are, more or less. Um, but yeah, the acceleration phase would take more power to get you up to speed. Right. And I'm wondering if, if uh, Art, who is not a small human um, compared to a female pro, who I have no idea, but very likely a smaller human than Art, um, she probably had a bit of a weight advantage on the accelerations. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I would even tie another component into this as well that's, uh, that's overlooked is uh, braking. So this is something that's kind of passed off as, oh, not important for triathletes. But uh, if you're doing these corners, presumably you have to slow down. So just like car racing, the later you can slow down, the more distance you can make up. Now, I'm not really advocating going into a corner with uh, your tires sliding and about to fall off the course and take out some of the volunteers. But if you can more confidently brake, then that does give you a little bit of a speed advantage as well. Um, and that is, I would say, a good argument for disc brakes right there. Yeah, which is something that we haven't really talked about this time around, but we've we've mentioned in the past that there is... Yeah, there are pros and cons to to the braking, the the different braking technologies. And uh, Nick Salazar planted his flag firmly in the pro rim brake camp. Uh, seems like the industry is going the other way, and uh, I'm still making up my mind. I do enjoy disc brakes on my cross bike. Mm. Uh, I <laughs> I lock my wheels all the time. Although it's not, listen, it's not hard to lock your wheels on uh, a, a rim brake bike if the rims are clean. So yeah. When when you need brakes, it's nice to have disc brakes because you can modulate them better. Um, you have more, I would say, more ability to do any kind of threshold braking where you're kind of on the limit of grip, and you can just brake more confidently in general. So that would be kind of the advantage. Um, things are going that way anyway. It seems like even Cervelo has basically converted their entire uh, triathlon. Oh yeah, everything. Series. Yeah, so it's it's basically here to stay. Um, the the big holdout was really just the um, the Grand Tour teams. Um, they <laughs> cyclists being who they are, um, fairly conservative. They did not want to change to something new. This this new technology that's been on mountain bikes for 15, 20 years, but this new technology that they saw, uh, they just didn't want to convert, and that was the big holdout. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, this is the biggest the biggest factor for this is when it's wet. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's, uh, you know, even in our conversation with Nick, he was saying if you're comparing apples to apples, you have to compare aluminum brake surface or alloy brake surfaces if you're going to compare them to discs. And yes, you can get pretty good braking with alloy uh, rim brakes. But the reality of wheel manufacturing is there are some alloy uh, rim brake aero wheels out there, but they're few and far between. The vast, vast, vast majority is, is uh, carbon you know, carbon throughout. And so they're not, so they're even with very good treatments like zip or envy or, um, or head, you're still not getting the same kind of braking performance as you would from an alloy rim or obviously from a, you know, a steel rotor, alloy rotor. And this completely removes the whole argument or the whole problem of having to change your brake pads with different braking surfaces. Cause I know that's an issue. I've never had carbon brake surfaces, but I do know that you do have to run different pads and you have to swap them out. So if you've got training wheels versus racing wheels, you should change and it just becomes a pain. So with disc brakes, that kind of disappears. Absolutely. Yeah. Compound braking compounds are really important for carbon versus aluminum. And then there's also the, you know, the, the story of 
picking up little splinters of aluminum into your brake pads and then putting those brake pads onto your carbon rims and then just scoring the brake surface with that little splinter and abrade and uh, just causing a lot of abrasion, um, which you don't want on your potentially very expensive carbon rims. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. No, no. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's look. There are pros and cons, but the, on the on the con side, you know, if you setting up disc brakes is more of a pain in the butt. Depending on the brake, I mean, some triathlon brakes are ridiculously stupid because they're hidden in, <laughs> in dumb ways, and there's, they're really hard to set up and really hard to change when you're changing from training wheels to race wheels. The usually the rim width changes, so you have to, you know, change the spacing of the um, of the pad holders, which can be easy in, on something like a Shimano brake, or can be really hard on something like my old Garneau uh, TR1 uh, bike. I liked quite a bit, but the brakes on it they worked well. The performance was fine, but setting them up was a nightmare getting them balanced and even um was not so much fun but with disc brakes like shifting even shifting between wheels because the tolerances are so tight it's the same thing as you know putting on a different cassette or a different wheel on your in your rear and then the shifting's off by a little bit because again the tolerances are tight so i have to adjust my my rim brakes or excuse me my disc brakes on my cross bike every time i change wheels on it and that is a less straightforward pro process maybe i'm just not very good at it yet but less straightforward process than a straightforward let's say dual pivot caliper rim brake would be and I think with something like a floating rotor that uh, I know cars have used that, motorcycles have used that for a number of years, but I think it's just starting to find its way into the uh, the cycling community. Um, that solves some of the problems where you get this ability for it to slide back and forth a little bit and take up. Uh, it actually allows for thermal expansion as well because you can put quite a bit of heat into a disc, especially if you're doing a long descent. Uh, so having that ability for thermal expansion and that play back and forth um, it, it just makes it a lot easier. But I would expect these problems are kind of teething problems and they'll they'll disappear over the next couple of years. Yeah, for sure. As this technology gets better. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that cover it for us? What, what else have we got? I think that's it. That was a pretty, pretty comprehensive episode, but uh, very fun to talk about. Yeah, for sure. That was, that was dense. Um, guys, social distancing. Thank you, nurses and frontline health workers and doctors. Yes. Thank you, you guys are going to save us from the apocalypse. So hats off. Yeah, and if anyone's feeling any kind of symptoms, just uh, just stay home. Absolutely. Just stay out of the way of other people. That's that's the most important thing right now, I think. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's it for us at uh, Endurance Innovation for today. Hopefully, this was something to occupy your brain with that wasn't too much virus talk. <laughs> and if you have lots of extra time sitting at home because work's been canceled, you can go listen to back episodes. That's right. We are on, uh, this will be, depending which order this we release this in, this will be 44 or 45. So we're, we're approaching our, our 50th episode, which will be roughly a year of endurance innovation being around. We'll have to get a bottle of champagne for that. Yeah, for sure. We just hit uh, 20,000 downloads, so that's kind of cool too. Excellent. Thank you everyone for downloading. So as always, uh, if you have questions, if you have questions about anything we talked about, if you want to hear me talk more about angular velocity or Andrew about, uh, uh, you know, boundary conditions and, and, and Reynolds numbers, then uh, <laughs> do send us those questions. We'll be happy to entertain. I'm, I'm just in the process of writing my PhD <laughs> thesis right now, so I can read a page or two to someone if they really want to have something that uh, satisfies that curiosity. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, take the extra screen time that you're, I'm sure we're all getting, you're all getting, to uh, give us a rating and a review on whichever 
podcast listening service you subscribe to that will help us and uh, tell your friends. We've received some really cool feedback um, through social media and through emails and through comments on uh, my website, the X3 website. So do keep those coming. Uh, they're, they're always awesome. And also because we don't actually so far yet monetize this podcast in any way your you know your kind words are kind of what keep us going so that's that's always good to hear absolutely and thanks for listening everyone <laughs>